0: Subscribe to The Spectator magazine this Christmas and get the next 12 issues in print and online for just £12. Not only that, but you'll also receive a bottle of Tattinger champagne worth £42 to see you through to the new year. Join the party today at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash celebrate.
1: Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There will be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? When the tennis star Peng Shuai had a row with her former lover, she took to Weibo, the Chinese social media platform, where she had half a million followers. It was in that statement that she accused Zhang of starting their affair with sexual assault. The statement was taken down within minutes, demonstrating the power, speed and arguably the manual nature of China's online censors. On this podcast, we've previously talked about the nature of journalism in China. But what about social media, that inherently decentralized medium? What role does the digital space play in Chinese lives? How reliable is it as a source of Chinese public opinion? And how do people feel about being monitored and potentially censored? These are the questions I'll be asking today. On the episode, I'm first speaking to Manya Kutsu, founder of whatsonweibo.com, a brilliant resource for English speakers to find out, well, what's on Weibo. Manya, welcome to Chinese Whispers. To start with, can you tell me what Weibo is?
2: Weibo literally means microblog, and the Weibo that we are talking about is actually Sina Weibo, which is one of the largest social media networks in China, and it was launched in 2009. It used to be called the Chinese equivalent of Twitter, but I think nowadays we could say it's a little bit of Twitter, it's a little bit of Facebook, it's a little bit of YouTube, but most of all, Weibo is just Weibo. It's a very powerful Chinese social media network.
1: And in terms of the social media scene in general in China, so there is Weibo, would you say that's the most popular one? And what are the other ones out there and the functions that they
2: serve? I would say the most popular social app in China is WeChat, but WeChat is much more than social media alone. It is a messenger, people use WeChat to pay, you know, a large portion of the online time Spend by people is spend on WeChat. So I would say that's the number one. But Weibo is more like an open marketplace where people can discuss a lot of different subjects together in a group instead of WeChat being more for your friends. Yeah, to private rooms, if you like. And then there are many other social media platforms such as, well, Show, which is it's all about video you have Zhihu, which is like Chinese equivalent of Quora. You have Bilibili, you have Douyin, you have Xiao Shu, Little Red Book. Oh, there are so many, actually. It's a very vibrant social media environment. And also, interestingly enough, Chinese netizens are one of the most active social media users in the world. But why they are the most active. That is, I think, speculative. Uh, Some people say it's because of the one-child generation, that people spend more time on their phones because they have no interaction with siblings. Some people say that it's because of the urban-rural divide that you have in China. So many people have moved to the city, so they use social media to stay in touch with their friends back home. And then perhaps it's also because there is a lack of trust in official sources in China. So people tend to look for alternative news sources instead of just reading the official newspaper. So social media is also just a very important go-to source for checking the latest news.
1: Is there a demographic difference as well? So, for example, age ranges. One thing that I find is how active some of my older family members are on WeChat, even though their equivalents in maybe in the West wouldn't necessarily be so active on Facebook. You know, my grandma, who is 80, is you know, active on WeChat. <laughs> so do you think that the generational span is also wider in uptake of these things?
2: Well, yeah, I think Weibo is used by a very wide range of people, Yeah, the newer social media apps such as Bilibili, that's obviously more the younger demographics in China using those. But I think Weibo is very accessible for multiple generations, although I think majority is probably post 80s, post 90s using the platform. And Manya, you've got a website called whatsonweibo.com. Before we
1: talk about, you know, the sort of stuff you look at, tell me, why did you start that project?
2: Well, when I was living in China, which was before 2012, when I was actually studying in China at Beijing University... I would pick up on things that were trending online through my friends, but I felt that I, did, I was always out of the loop. I really didn't know what they were talking about. So firstly, I really wanted to understand what people were talking about when it came to China's online environment. And secondly, when I moved back to Amsterdam, I felt really out of touch with everyday trends. So for me, social media was just a way to keep my finger on the pulse of everyday China, see what people are talking about, what is censored, what is not censored, and then as a way to push myself to keep up with the latest trends, I launched my website. And, and also, I thought that at the time you had a lot of different blogs on China, but a lot of it was focused on more the political side of social media and censorship. And I wanted to take a social approach.
1: Yeah, very much so, because so many people, I would say, live their lives on social media rather than on the official documents that the Beijing government is putting out or anything like that. So in some ways, it's more in touch. And when you look at when you collate things for your website and also across different platforms, what are some of the topics that trend, the things that people care about, the things that do well?
2: Well, I think throughout the years, what I've learned is that it's often the really small stories that tend to get very big. And I think this is something different than what I see on Facebook or on Twitter, where you see really big stories get big, you know, big political events, big international happenings or incidents. And on China, it could be something as small as You know, a guy getting scammed in a hot pot restaurant, or a a woman letting a little boy trip because he was annoying her at a restaurant, and then the video comes out, and then the entire nation is angry at this woman. (laughs) Who is she? Why did she do this? And but I think it's funny because you might sometimes think, oh, these stories are so small, they're insignificant, but often they represent larger issues, for example. Public safety, public trust, traffic safety, relationship status of men and women. Health and safety at restaurants. Yeah, so many different things that are really, it says more about society at large. So I think it's always fun to cover these smaller incidents and see what they actually stand for and why people get so worked up over them. Well, I think that's a really interesting
1: behavior and exercise on Chinese social media, actually, because everyone passes judgment. And it's it's like this public forum where you're kind of throwing tomatoes at the metaphorical stock. But it's not anyone famous. It's just a random person caught on camera doing something weird. I don't know if that's a particularly Chinese thing to pass judgment like that. I don't know. (laughs)
2: But also, let's not forget that, of course, censorship does have to do with it, because a lot of the times the biggest events or the biggest political things are something that cannot be discussed. So I think people also jump on the smaller stories because they can freely discuss those, Mm -hmm. whereas the bigger things are often censored or really sensitive. So people really have to mind what they say and that also gives an extra benefit to the smaller stories.
1: Yeah, so I have been spending a lot more time on Xiaohongshu, you know, Red, which is, for listeners, it's like a kind of Instagram mixed with TikTok. There's lots of videos and lots of pictures, and it's all very aesthetically pleasing. But I find, and maybe revealing something about my algorithm here, but I find there's a lot of, you know, stuff like animals, lifestyle things, traveling, very, very innocuous things, nothing You know, Weibo, maybe you'll even get the kind of health and safety scandals and that sort of stuff. But on the stuff on Xiaohongshu, which is aimed mainly at millennials and Gen Zs, you know, the stuff is so superficial. And, you know, it really makes you wonder whether or not those conversations that are not about these things are happening for that age group.
2: Yeah, they are definitely happening. But I just think Xiaohongshu maybe is not the right platform for that. Also, if you look at Douban, for example, which is, again, another platform and the like I previously said, the Chinese equivalent to a Quora q and platform, you will find a lot of serious discussions there and people really reflecting on what's going on in the news or about certain social trends. But sometimes you have to dive a little bit deeper, especially when a topic is sensitive. People sometimes use different words to describe the topic they are talking about or the names of the people they are talking about. So yeah, you have to really keep up with the language used because otherwise you won't understand at all.
1: Can you give me an example of that? Because I want to talk about censorship much more as well. But, you know, when as a dealing mechanism, I think people who use Chinese social media have ways around that censorship in the ways that you're talking about. What What is an example of using a different word or code to discuss sensitive topics?
2: Well, it happens so quickly because people just want to talk about a subject. And the moment that they notice that it's being censored, they just have to come up very quickly with another word to describe the situation. So for example, this month, of course, the Peng Shui story went viral, or it didn't go viral initially, it, it was censored mostly. But I think we'll talk about that later as well. But the name Peng Shui was actually censored on Chinese social media. So people were very quick to give her nicknames, Bei, or to just use PS, for example. But then also, you know, you often see that those terms are being censored as well. And in this case, it was really difficult to discuss Peng shui because it was censored in a very, very extreme way. But usually people can discuss certain things using code words. For example, Xinjiang is deemed a sensitive word. So you often see people using just the X and the J to talk about Xinjiang, for example.
1: Yeah, yeah. And how does that censorship work then? Because Peng Shuai is a good example in that her statement was published and then censored afterwards. So are there like manual people trawling the internet for these things and then deleting that? And are those people working for the companies themselves rather than as a government staff member? maybe?
2: Yeah, censorship works in two ways. You have the censorship software, so that's automated. And there are many different keywords that are already included in that software. They know certain word combination or certain words. So that is done automatically. And then you have the actual human teams who are censoring themselves. And most social media platforms have their own censorship team. So for example, Weibo has one, Tou Tiao and Kuaishou and all of those platforms. And I mean, they're not being secretive about it at all. I remember some time ago, Weibo was actually recruiting moderators, they call it moderators. And it seemed to be quite a popular job, you know, (laughs) because people can have uh, access to a lot of different information. So yeah, But it's the platform itself. So sometimes you'll see that things are being censored really quickly. And sometimes you wonder if it's necessary or not. These platforms are just trying to protect their business as well. It's not always Mm -hmm. about government orders. It's sometimes also just about self-censorship or being super, super careful.
1: Yeah, so preemptive. That's interesting. And I think they also tweak I mean, which is not so shocking, really, because I know lots of websites can tweak what's most popular, seen on the website and that sort of thing. But, you know, on the Weibo, top trends. So I was checking yesterday before we were recording and the top trend was the spirit of the sixth plenum. And it's like, is that really (laughs) the thing that's top trending in all of China or all of Weibo right now? Or has that been manually put there? So like that trend top chart is how reliable is that to look at?
2: (laughs) You know, I don't know. That makes it really difficult for me sometimes. I feel that, you know, when I started my website, What's on Weibo, I think that was like 2014, 2015. I had the feeling back then that it was much more straightforward, what was trending. But now, yeah, I I definitely see that some trends are being pushed down, so some things are not allowed to enter the top 10 trending lists, and some things that are, are barely being discussed. So obviously, Weibo has its own special algorithm. I haven't seen a lot of research about this, maybe I should look into that more, but also it's very hard to get the data you need to do this kind of research. But definitely, I wouldn't blindly trust the top trending lists, no.
1: Yeah. Well, that brings me on to my next question, because I think for me and you who are not in China, you suggested this already, that social media is quite a, you know, at least it's an insightful way of looking into what people are talking about. And you caveat it by knowing that, you know, no one's going to be discussing Xi Jinping's successor or something like that on there. At the same time, how much can we learn from social media, especially these days?
2: Well, I think you can learn about Chinese social media in two ways. You know, On the one hand, the everyday stories really say something about what people are concerned about, what issues matter to them, what apps are they using, what sort of stories go viral. But on the other hand, it also says something about how the government deals with these developments and how they are allowed or how they are stimulated or how they are restricted. So I, I think in many different ways, social media is a really helpful tool to help you understand Chinese media environment and culture or society at large. And I think, for example, in 2017, I remember that there was the launch of a pair video, which was this new news platform. It was an app. It was really targeted at young people, really fast, short videos. And it kind of impressed me because I spent a long time looking for what kind of news platform is this? And in the end, of course, it was state backed. But that was really the start of a new sort of state media and a new type of propaganda that was really targeted at young people. And also not making it very clear that this was People's Daily, or this was, you know, China Daily, but making it far more hip and really in tune with Chinese social media. So...
1: So then Manya, we talked a little bit about this already, but what are people's expectations of what they can and can't say on social media? Because they obviously, they expect censorship to the extent that they've got these dealing mechanisms. Do they get angry about censorship or do they just see it as the way things are? Or
2: how do they negotiate that? Well, obviously, I cannot speak for the millions of people who are using Chinese social media. What I can do is just think about what I often discuss with some of my friends in Beijing or in Shanghai, and I noticed that, for example, when Pinterest was banned in China, one of my friends was just devastated. She's a designer and she had so many of her photos and her inspiration on Pinterest. And that was a moment that she got really pissed about the great firewall of China because Mm -hmm. she felt something so innocent as Pinterest. Why would it need to be banned in China? So But at other times, I also see that people are understanding why certain things need to be repressed, such as during the early start of the Hong Kong protests a few years ago, 2019 mainly, is when a lot of people also understood that if you do not censor this or if you do not guide the way that this is brought out in the public, then it could maybe cause unrest or social unrest. And that's something that nobody wants. So. I think there are many different answers for this question, but it's not as black and white, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, I think that's really interesting what you're saying about Hong Kong, because one thing that struck me about talking to my Chinese friends and family about Hong Kong is that so many of them talk about education as the problem in Hong Kong or the lack of proper education, i.e. patriotic education, i.e. arguably propaganda, right? And so these are people who themselves have been subjected to patriotic education, looking over at Hong Kong and saying they need to be subjected to the same kind of propagandistic education. And, you know, there's a bit of a feedback loop here. It's not just one direction from the government down towards the people.
2: Yeah, I saw that too. That was very interesting. And also what you saw during that time was that a lot of people got angry at how Western media were reporting on the Hong Kong protests, because they felt that it was the police attacking the protesters, they felt that it was, you know, everywhere in mainstream media. And the moment that it happened the other way around, when police officers actually got attacked By very aggressive protesters, they felt that it was not highlighted enough. So yeah, I think that the Hong Kong protest definitely was a moment that I saw this new wave of nationalism online, which you've always had, but especially the past two years, it's been so clear and COVID-19 has only strengthened the wave that started back then.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of my questions for you, actually, this this phenomenon of the hong, which I don't know how best to translate it, but hong as in people who are red, as in pro-communist, and xiaofeng as in like, I guess, pink or little versions of that. I mean, is that a fair translation, do you think? I think um, they,
2: they call it little pinkies, right? I'm not sure, though, yeah, but I think, yeah. yeah.
1: So this online name for people who are kind of nationalistic keyboard warriors, as it were. And you see them quite a lot, don't you? You see some posts that are deemed not patriotic enough. And then in the comment section, you will have people, you know, really being quite aggressive and angry in a way that, you know, we're not going to be strangers to in Western social media either, but coming from a very nationalistic perspective.
2: Yeah, it's very common. And I think that Well, you also have Little Pinkies. They've been around for a long time, and I I think you see them on Twitter as well. But especially over the last year, I've seen a far more sophisticated form of online nationalism with these political cartoonists, or I don't know, yeah, satirical cartoonists. I don't know how you want to call them, but who are making really beautiful art, actually, but are Mm -hmm. mocking the West. You probably saw some of these art images come by on, on Twitter or wherever. Many, many media actually reported on them because they were making fun of the G7. They were making fun of the COVID situation in America in a very beautiful way, actually, using art, using Photoshop, very creative. So I think this is also, it represents the current movement of this more sophisticated cyber nationalism that is not just only about attacking others, but has its own new strategy.
1: Yeah. Well, how organic do you think that is? Because I guess people listening to this might first thought be, oh, well, that's just state-backed or whatever it is. But I get the feeling some of them are just actually people who believed in that, maybe young people who, you know, have a lot of time to spend online.
2: I think it's a mix. You know, there are definitely some artists or some people who are immediately state-backed or who might have even gotten the assignment to produce something but definitely there are also artists and floggers and bloggers who are writing their own things, creating their own art, and are just nationalists themselves. And then they are again being retweeted, reposted by official accounts who praise these netizens or these artists for their work. So We often, when we talk about Chinese social media, we really want to understand it in different categories, right? Like, okay, this is the state. These are the netizens. These are the companies. These are the NGOs. But sometimes it's just not that simple. Those different layers, they all come together like a spider web. They're all entangled. So (laughs) that makes it very dynamic, but it also sometimes makes it a little bit difficult to understand
1: yeah well i I also think just going back to the Chafffenhorn, the little pinkies, you know i I've seen them attacking people who they see as not patriotic enough and one particularly striking blog that I saw I think around this time last year was comparing the merits relative merits of Western vaccines compared to Chinese vaccines and the guy who wrote it was some kind of scientist background, so it was meant to be a very kind of objective piece, but throughout the piece, he had to say stuff like, "'I love my country." I love the uh, Guachan vaccines, the homemade vaccines. I think our country is great. But Pfizer is also good for this. this, 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 You know That he didn't feel like he could say something like Pfizer is more efficacious for fear of the backlash. And you can see some people in the comments saying it's so sad that he has felt the need to say this. But for example, the vaccine was really quite a toxic discussion on some parts of Chinese social media.
2: Oh, definitely. I mean, it's all part of the whole COVID-19 rhetoric of China handling the pandemic the outbreak in a very good way actually i think what you saw at the beginning of the outbreak of covid-19 in china was that people were really panicked very paranoia very angry about censorship about things being unclear so at that time i was thinking okay this is going to bring a lot of social unrest mm. this is this is very very interesting actually looking at it from an outsider looking in, especially what happened with Dr. Lee, who is now called a whistleblower during the early stages of COVID-19. But what happened after spring of 2020, when the first cinema started to open, when people were going out again and started to enjoy life again, it was slowly turning back to normal. That is when you saw this great pride in how China had managed the COVID-19 crisis. And that is also a moment that you saw far more anti-Western movements, social movements coming up with people looking at America and Europe and thinking, oh, my God, China has done so much to, you know, make sure that the epidemic wouldn't go out of control. And even within China, people made so many sacrifices not to let the fire spread. And then here we were in the Netherlands, for example, just letting people come in at the airport. (laughs) Nobody cared about doing any tests or about wearing masks. And I think this has created a big divide, the different COVID-19 approaches. And at the same time, while things were getting really bad in the U.S., people were starting to point the finger at China and say, this is all your fault. And then you have two completely different perspectives. And I can understand that people got really upset about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Dr. Lee,
1: actually, because I thought the social media episode around that was quite interesting, that people were allowed when he died to have an outpouring of grief. And I saw that quite a lot on WeChat. People who were divided on Hong Kong issue, for example, were united
2: in their grief for Dr. Lee. I think that Dr. Lee was, it was a story that was just, almost too big to censor, and also because Chinese media were reporting about it themselves. But I think the strategy was really, really messy because, you know, there was one source who was saying that he had already passed away in February of 2020. And then within an hour, there was another source saying, no, no, wait, he's still alive. And (laughs) oh, no, wait, he, he is dead after all. And I think this really made people angry because it was already a time when people were so, you know. Anxious, scared. Yeah. scared, anxious, paranoid. So this only added fuel to that fire that was already going on. I think censoring all of those discussions would have actually caused probably more unrest than what they did now. So I think that was a very interesting night to look at this thing blowing up on social media and people really, like you said, there was this outpour of grief and anger. And, and it was interesting to see what happened to Dr. Lee and his mem- the memory of Dr. Lee afterwards, because, you know, he is not remembered as some sort of rebel or somebody mm. who was against the official authorities. Not at all. He is remembered as one of the people who was working on the front line and everybody united working on the front line. So I think that also helps that, you know, he's become part of the memory of the Wuhan outbreak. He's well, not what- been censored.
1: Well, exactly. I mean, and that's such a different narrative to the one you hear in the West, actually. The the thing that some people say in China is that, you know, Dr. Li was a party member himself. He only meant to warn his friends and someone screenshot him. He didn't mean to make a whole fuss. And then clearly there were, you know, unscrupulous or, you know, overzealous police officers who are corruption at a lower, lower level. So then it wasn't political. It depoliticized the whole affair. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah,
1: yeah. And Manya, before we finish, I want to also ask you about fanqiang, You know, going over the firewall that we talked about, which people literally call going over the wall, and by that they mean using VPNs to go onto Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or these other things. How frequently do you think that is done? And when we see someone posting on Twitter from mainland China who is not state media, for example, <laughs> how tech savvy are they, and how representative are they of the Chinese demographic?
2: I'm not really sure, to be honest. I know there have been some studies on it previously, but that is probably outdated already because since a few years ago, there's been more news report in Chinese media about people being arrested because they've been selling VPNs. And, you know, the regulations have become far more strict than before. I mean, a few years ago, it was very normal for a lot of people to use a VPN. So I really don't know about now, but what I can say is that for many people, they simply do not need to use a VPN because Mm -hmm. anything that you need when it comes to social media or news or whatever, the so many apps, they can find it within the great firewall of China, within China's online environment. It's just for the people who are interested in getting alternative sources or who want to use Twitter or Facebook that they want to jump the wall up. For the people who really want to do it, I'm sure that, that it's not that difficult for them to get a VPN. But it's just that being really outspoken always comes with the risk. And we've seen that over the past few years, people being arrested in China for things that they've said on Twitter.
1: Yeah. I think you you make a really good point on the online environment part because I think we often forget how just how big an online environment is. It's essentially, you know, a Chinese language cultural world that, you know, we have in the Anglophone world where everyone shares everything and the amount the amount of content that's out there is huge. So I, I think you're totally right to say that people don't feel the need to go onto another language of source of foreign media or anything like that.
2: You have no Spotify but you have Shimalaya, no Tinder but you have Momo. You have no Google but you have Baidu. And I mean some of these I'm not sure if it's fair to call them equivalents, but mm. some of these equivalents are actually more multifaceted and more advanced than the, the American or the, the European platforms, such as Facebook, for example. I think compared to WeChat or Weibo or Douyin, it's become a little bit outdated maybe.
1: Mania thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank you. And next, I'm speaking to Shen Lu, a reporter covering Chinese tech for the American website Protocol. I started by asking her about the time she was censored on Weibo, when she was covering a MeToo moment in China.
0: So this was right before Xianzi, the feminist activist's second trial. Her own account had already been been suspended for a year before the trial and before that quite a few prominent chinese feminist activists accounts got censored after ultranationalist weibo accounts launched a smear campaign against them basically it was a cyberbully that happened to feminist activists and they lost their accounts so people weren't really able to talk And so the feminist activists were not able to set an agenda, you know, for the discussion around the Xianzi case, because many people were interested in the case and were talking about it. It was not just feminists, but like the general public. So with them being silenced, there was no basically leader in leading the discussion of the Xianzi case. And so there were a few Weibo users who basically posted something about, you know, this case is going on trial tomorrow. Let's not forget this. And here's what happened since 2014. when Xianzi alleged that the CCTV post Zhu Jing uh sexually harassed her. And so that post, so a lot of people share the post, right? It's like Twitter share. We share the posts. Like many of us didn't say anything just share the post that about you know the case going on tomorrow and then I guess like on the day of the trial my account just got was suspended I I was not allowed to speak for seven days and many other people experienced the same issues not you know suspended for seven days or 20 you know 14 days or forever some people lost their accounts So that was my experience. And previously, I've also lost other accounts as well. So I've been a Weibo user for 10 years now, over 10 years. And it's a special place for me. I've made a lot of friends, like-minded friends there. And it's my online community. And now I just, I no longer post about anything about private life. like I can no longer tell which friend is which because we started to self-censor a lot. I'm no longer on Weibo. It's just for work, not that I'm also active on Twitter. I just try to be not active on social media in general.
1: Yeah. When I look at Chinese social media, I feel like a lot of the discussions for obvious reasons is quite superficial. So you're talking about things like pets like cute animals Mm -hmm. or we're talking about lifestyles or traveling or cooking or some stupid thing that happened where like a child got saved by some hero citizen and Mm -hmm. you know that kind of uplifting story you get quite a lot but obviously what you don't see is discussion of issues not just political issues but issues of morality often Mm -hmm. do you think and I often despair that that means that Chinese young people are not thinking about these things because they're only chasing celebrities or they're only chasing the latest trends. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's fair or do you think that having those discussions offline where they don't have to self-censor in the same way because there's no paper trail as such if you're going to someone's house and talking over dinner it's different to if you're discussing about something over Weibo?
0: I don't think that's the full picture of the political leanings of China's youth. I think we should not read into the psyche of an entire generation just by a subgroup of this population, how they express themselves on Weibo or on other social media. I think there are a few things at stake here. One is that it is uh, risky to speak out now. So a lot of people are no longer expressing their political opinions on Weibo because of fear of backlash. And so you're not able to hear these people's voices because, you know, these people might have moved to Twitter or they've given up using Twitter altogether. The other thing is that there are different cocoons that, you know, um, with like many, many different universes and cocoons on Weibo. It depends on who you follow. And my Weibo feed might be quite different than yours. Mm-hmm. The The people I follow are very politically active, are very vocal about political issues about, you know, about feminism, about racism, and a lot of them have studied abroad or are studying abroad, they're not just liberal leaning, but also progressive. So these people do exist. It's just you don't see their posts, because they're they don't have a large following or because someone who hasn't been on Weibo for a long time. So we need to remember that as well.
1: And Shen Lu, what about how it makes, I mean, you're a journalist based in New York, so I guess your experience of it will be you know, different from someone who is using it in China, not for journalistic reasons. But how do those average users, perhaps your friends and family, how do they feel about being censored or being monitored? I just wonder like, how people mentally acknowledge or come to terms with the fact that they have to use Clue words, subtle hints like P.S. to describe Pong Shui, for example. You know, what, what does that make people feel like when they have to do that? Sad.
0: It's really sad when you cannot even pronounce the name of a tennis star or spell out her name on on Weibo. It's it's a very sad thing. And, you know, the kind of mental toll it takes, you know, censorship takes on people is probably more severe than a lot of people would think. It's not about losing just account or it's not about you're you're not able to, you know, you're suspended for seven days. It's about you risk losing your online community, your online homeland every single day. And, you know, the losing connections with people who you basically see as your friends it's a very hard thing and a lot you know I don't have the worst experience I've interviewed people who had worst experience they've lost dozens of accounts to a point they can no longer be back on Weibo and they can no longer you know talk and they can no longer communicate with their
1: followers or their friends on Weibo it's devastating because Weibo asks for real identification when you make an account is that right
0: not just that for Weibo users who have been targeted, whatever ID they use, whatever burner account they use, they, they're just going to be tracked down and not able to get back. You know, If they have a new account, their account will disappear in, in, a, in a matter of a few hours or a few days.
1: Is that IP address tracking? How, do they, how does the company know that? I don't quite
0: know how it works, yeah. but it probably yeah. is IP. It probably is some you know, speech pattern that they recognize I would say, though, although Weibo is not as vibrant, well, in other ways, it's more vibrant today. It's probably got more users and, you know, more diverse user groups and topics and stuff. But to a lot of us who started using Weibo in, the like, 2010, 2011, in the beginning of its booming years, Weibo is quite different now. Back in the days, like, what I read most was about, you know, protests and political issues and social people discussing about social issues. And it sort of incur I, I later became a journal journalist, partly because I was able to witness, you know, a dynamic, vibrant discussion about, you know, civic issues. And it's quite different. Now, those people who used to be vocal about political issues are no longer on Weibo. And like you said, a lot of people probably see it as a place where people just post superficial stuff. But I don't think that's the truth. I think, although it's not what it, it was 10 years ago, it still is the most important public square for civic discussions for like, the the reason why Peng Shui could become a New York Times headline today the reason why her uh, sexual assault allegation could make international headlines—it was because she posted her mm. story on Weibo, although it was censored yeah. uh, promptly. I would still say it's a very important public discussion platform for Chinese people, and I will continue to, you know, monitor the speech and the goings on there. Because I, for someone who is not in China. It's a very important way for me to get connected to China and for me to familiarize with other goings on in China and the social trends in China, even more so than WeChat. Shen Lu, thank
1: you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Cindy. Thank you for listening. That's the final episode of Chinese Whispers for this year. We'll be taking a short break over Christmas, ready to kickstart January 2022 with plenty more fantastic episodes. Thank you for tuning in over the year, and do use this time to catch up on some of our previous episodes you might have missed. As always, keep rating and reviewing, and finally, have a great Christmas and see you in the new year. 祝大家圣诞快乐，新年快乐。